Arson looked warily at Aline's eyes, burning hot with tears as she offered her hand to him. He took a glance back at the fox, a mysterious and aggressively playful woman who claims to have known him his whole life. She seemed sincere enough. Would he really go back to that cell, though? His pack was all here now. He didn't need to go back to that place. Now they could be something more. He shut his eyes tightly and took in a deep breath. When his eyes opened, Eileen stood in front of him again. Her hand was shaking, and her face practically in a ball. Let's go together. You know it can't be that way, boy, the foxwoman chastised. I don't need to wait, you know. I can kill her easily. Her voice took on that same playful tone laced with the murderous nature. There, Eileen, are you all right? Get away from him. Arsum spun around to see a small army of tabaxi racing up the hillside to the forest line, all brandishing arms. A rustle behind him told him that the foxwoman abandoned him. She isn't part of my pack. The pack feeds, and the pack fights. The group now stood no more than twenty yards out, crossbows leveled at him. Quickly, step out of the way, Eileen. One of the guards dressed in a chain shirt dropped to a knee and quickly knocked a bolt. Stop, Marcus. It wasn't Awesome's fault. Yunti had been scowling at him the whole night. He shouldn't have been in the room in the first place. That's not for me to decide, and you know it, Eileen. Eileen wiped her face and stepped directly in front of Arsum. But I can. Esmeralda now stood in front of all of them, her back turned. She took a moment to catch her breath, and silence washed over the mob. This boy isn't to blame for the death of Wilhelm, nor the long disappearance of my daughter or my still-missing husband. Shouts of protest erupted from some of the guards. What about Yanti or Gonta? Esmeralda raised her hand to abate the crowd once more. It was Eileen that called out. Self-defense that is out of his control. When he's threatened, the rats attack. The guards and even her mother gave her a quizzical look. Arsum saw a transparent haze forming around the mob. The snap of a crossbow stole all of their attention, and Esmeralda fell forward. There was a small bead of blood and a small shaft sticking from her back. The crowd went into an uproar. Two guards rushed forward and tackled the chain shirt to Baxi to the ground. I was bewitched! I swear it! I wouldn't have done it otherwise! Please! No! He was already in manacles. A knee pressed deeply into his back. Mother! Eileen ran forward, her hand held tightly in Arsum's. Her sisters were already next to Esmeralda, who seemed to be unconscious. A piebald tabaxi and a dirty white duster stepped forward and immediately placed a hand on her neck. She's still breathing. Let's get her back so I can remove the... He paused a short second. After feeling around the edges of the wound, he pulled on the shaft and it came out freely, with very little bleeding. Cover this, Eileen, he said, holding out a wad of bandages. There was no head attached to the bolt. Looks as though something had chewed this off. A guard ran forward and explained the bolts were typically coated in genlum broth. The effects were short-lasting paralysis and sometimes would make the victim go unconscious. That makes sense. Thank you. Let's get her back. The rest of you, keep that traitor under lock and key. I don't believe for a second there was any kind of bewitching that took place here. The crowd raged and hissed, spitting at the guard who had fired the bolt at Esmeralda. It was as if they had completely forgotten the reason they had come. They returned to the main tent, dragging the guard by rope tied tightly around the cat's legs. He continued his protest of innocence, but was widely ignored by the hungry mob. They tied him to the large wooden support and gagged him. 
The hall was mostly a ruckus of profane language. Arsum and the three Tabaxi sisters were led to the back chamber where Esmeralda was placed to recover. Professor Samuel Grindstaff, arcane researcher and medicinal expert. He took Arsum's hand into his and shook it with vigor. Young man, you've got some interesting energy readings about you. I can't help but notice you carry an antiquity of Quran. Allow me to peruse it for a moment, would you? Arsum looked down to his sash where his dagger was tucked neatly away. He hadn't paid much mind to it. When had it gotten there? Professor Grindstaff bit into his lip as Arsum lifted it from its scabbard and offered it. The excitement overwhelmed the professor. He began mumbling large words that sounded nonsensical to him. He pulled a large magnifying glass out and began scoping every inch of the blade. Definitely mid-era. A finely made weapon. Can't distinguish this metal, but clearly it's made to last. Ah, see here, this is Salul, guardian of the beast realm. And this is Ferinthia, Karan's preferred mate. Also known as the Den Mother. Professor? Lana interrupted from Esmeralda's side. The professor looked up, his expression giving hint to annoyment of interruption into his musings. It quickly gave way as he took notice of Esmeralda, who was now awake but drenched in sweat. She let out soft moans and pulled out her fur, which tore out in large patches. Restrain her quickly, Professor Grindstaff said, leaving the dagger on the workbench, quickly moving towards the sisters. Esmeralda's skin was covered in small, dark blotches. My word, this is dry-ditch fever. Lana, go into my cupboard and look for a bottle labeled Isitor. Lana quickly threw open the cupboard doors. It was packed full of glass bottles brimming with herbs and other intricacies. She pulled a brilliantly glowing bottle out that had a single flower in it. Its petals were star-like, and its hue was a bright white of fresh snowfall edged with bluish hue that almost seemed to pulsate as the light hit it. Put some water on to boil and placed the bottle in the water for precisely three minutes. Lana quickly threw kindling under the wood stove and cursed whilst trying to light it. Hurry, girl, there isn't much time. This is the most aggressive case I've ever seen. The urgency in his voice cued the room into just how serious this dry ditch must have been. He grabbed a large staff leaning against his workbench and a green flame erupted from the end of it into a two-foot blade. It shot off and leapt onto the kindling which began to crackle loudly and burn black. Lana threw more kindling onto the aggressively burning fire. She left the room and returned momentarily with a large cast-iron pot full of water. The stove had begun to glow dull red from the intensity of the heat at this point, and she winced as she set it atop and shrinked back immediately. The water was boiling within seconds. The professor waved his staff once more and the red color grew back to black. Use the tongs, girl. She dipped the bottle in and began counting to herself. Meanwhile, he continued to examine Esmeralda, who now presented with convulsive episodes every few minutes. This isn't right. Why is it spreading so quickly? Elite and Giselle were just as frantic, standing beside the professor and waiting for any assistance they could provide. Before long, the professor shouted to bring the flowers, which had now melted into a fine crystal-like compound. He produced a flask and poured in a clear liquid. What's that, professor? Elite asked. He took a swig of it for himself. The real magic. The crystals dissolved and the solution turned a fluorescent green color. He gently put it to Esmeralda's lips which quivered with fever. Once the last drop fell, the majority of the rash was already in recession. This won't be enough. The professor placed a hand on his furrowed brow. That flower was incredibly rare and only grows in the mountains north of the ancient city of Redwall. 
A sage named Jacques gave this one to me ten cycles ago. I happened upon him by chance when my wife contracted this very same illness and had been bedridden for weeks. She appeared to be in the final stages, much like Esmeralda appeared moments ago. In her case, it cleared up instantly. I fear a single dose will not work for your mother. In my professional opinion, there is at best three weeks, and I caution that the aggressiveness I saw manifests abnormally. In other words, I cannot make promises on her survival. Esmeralda's eyes slowly opened. Awesome. She choked out. Come. He walked over and kneeled level his ear with her head. Stay away from the fox. Her eyes closed slowly once more. Who's the fox? The professor said, looking at him. She's a monster. The one who took his memories away and tried coercing him away earlier, Aline said, fuming with anger. The professor pawed his chin. Memories, huh? He walked in front of Arsum, placing a strong hand over his head. Arsum's eyes rolled back and the memories came pouring in. The fire with Lillian, Aline, the goblins, Cassandra, his mother, the sick secret of his old home, everything. The professor collapsed into a chair and looked over to Arsum, who stood and threw his arms around Aline. Sorry. Sorry for everything you must have gone through. For Blink, for Wilhelm. Now, now, that isn't becoming of a young man, awesome. Experiencing one's life in an instance can be taxing, even more so for the person it doesn't belong to, I'm afraid. The professor was clearly fatigued, but held his composure the best he could. Your mind is cleansed, but something is still in there. Something very, very old. I would wager it has something to do with your heirloom. Arsum couldn't bring himself to listen to a single word as grief pulled his heart into his stomach like the heaviest of mountains. Eileen took Arsum into her arms, and fighting back her own emotions, assuaged her friend. A few moments passed, and a scream from the main tent sent the professor to his feet and out immediately. Lana and Giselle remained by their mother, while Eileen pulled Arsum, who was mostly placated by this point, with them. Professor Grindstaff stood in front of the support where the prisoner was fastened. No, he said, fear tracing his voice. The black rash covered the entire body. It's worse than I could have imagined. The tent was in an uproar. Many were screaming at each other, pointing blame around, even at Arsum, a foregone conclusion given he was already on pseudo-trial. Silence! Professor Grindstaff bellowed his voice, shook the very ground beneath them, and the curses and bickering stopped. Some illness, similar to dry-ditch disease, has found its way among us. Awesome is not to blame for this illness, and I am sending him along with Eline, and any of you brave enough to retrieve a cure from the mountains by the ruins of Redwall. Some protests started rising, but another enhanced word from the professor stowed their protests. I'm putting the caravan in quarantine until they return. Will any aid them in this difficult task? The room was silent. I will! Lana said, walking from the back room. I'm afraid you and your sister will need to stay here to help me care for Esmeralda. This is your caravan. If your mother were to pass, the responsibility cannot fall to me, as tradition dictates. The room stood silent another moment. I cannot stress the seriousness of this condition enough. Boil all water and cook everything thoroughly. Report to me immediately if any of you notice any symptoms.
I trust there is at least a single soul to aid these two on their journey. See me after the gathering. The professor had the corpse brought into the back room and placed across his workbench. Aline and her sisters weren't fond of this as their mother lay only a few feet away. He began to carve small pieces from the corpse and place them in the glass vials full of thick, clear liquid. Awesome, Aline. You two will set off in the morning. Pack some rations. On second thought, he pulled a large bag of gold from his coat. Use this to buy some. The two of them stared intently at the large sack laden with a small fortune. Not to worry, I assure you. It's pocket change from my previous adventures. Now go and have some of your own. Your people need you, Aileen. Awesome, your memories have enlightened me to quite a few loose ends I've acquired. It would be in your best interest to aid in this journey, and maybe look for a few answers yourself. He wasn't sure what to make of those words. Fine answers, Professor. The professor turned to him and cracked a wry smile before turning back to his work. He felt a hand on his shoulder and turned to find Aline. Let's get ready. They turned towards the door to see a medium-sized gray tabaxi dressed in fine leathers. On his belt were an assortment of throwing knives and a single dagger that was a fine silver traced with a bluish hue. Glad to see someone has a stomach for adventure. The professor raised his carving knife in a salute to the cat. Can't say I've seen you around before. Do you work the staging? The stranger's lip broke into a pale smile. A new recruit for the guard, actually. Not from the caravan originally. But I didn't pass on the opportunity when Garon mentioned the opening. The professor was startled. Garon, he's one of the missing guards that went with the caravan master, wasn't he? One and the same, I'm afraid. I was still too wet behind the ears to go leave with them at the time. So I understand there's some kind of plant we're supposed to be picking up? The professor nodded. He walked over to his desk and pulled a large rock from the drawer. The face had an unrecognizable rune carved deeply into it, along with a circle of arrows. Heliathus Vega. The stone began glowing with a dull light. This is a druidic trinket I picked up many years ago. It will guide you, but it isn't perfect, nor will it guarantee finding the rare flower we seek. It will, however, lead you to the most suitable environment. In other words, it will point you to Isitor. The journey will take at least two weeks. A gasp was heard from Giselle. But didn't you say Mother had a few weeks at best? She was clutching her chest and had begun to breathe heavily. Yes, indeed. I've been thinking about that. I'm going to continue my research into the ailment. Meanwhile, I'm going to start preparing a stasis ritual to freeze her state of being. Stasis? What's that? Eline was growing noticeably wary considering circumstances placed upon them. Essentially, I'm going to stop all functions and passage of time around her. I'm hoping it doesn't come to that as spatial magics are extremely difficult and mostly taboo. The sisters looked uneasy at the mention of taboo. The mostly unexplored and many higher forms of study have led to dire consequences. I'm afraid it is the best I can do to preserve your mother's life should the situation dictate it. For now, all of us need some rest, and I would especially say so for you three. By the way, I didn't catch your name. The Debaxi stood from the wall and stretched his arms long into the air as if he had just woken from a nap. It's Hugo. A pleasure to make all of your acquaintances. 
I'm afraid tonight is worn on me. Shall we meet out front in the moon, comrades? Hugo turned towards Arsam and Aline. They both felt uneasy for some reason as he gazed at the two of them. Sounds good. We'll all meet at sunrise, Aline said while retrieving the druidic stone from the professor. They departed to a mostly empty main tent where only a few small groups were throwing back ale or eating dry meats that deemed safe enough for consumption. It's probably best if you slept in my room. Eileen gestured to a large purple tent. The worn state of the outside of the tent mislabeled the makeshift luxury inside. The tent had been sectioned off four ways. Each room had a large bed along with lavish pillows and personalizations of the residents that must have resided there. Eileen led him to the center partition. It was by far the most decorated section of the tent. There were markings all along the tent walls that filled the room. It reminded him of something, but he wasn't quite sure of what. Eileen began stripping off some of her leather and throwing them to the ground beside the bed. I'm in desperate need of a bath. I'll be back within the hour. Make yourself at home. There's a little bit of uh, pre-packed rations in the drawer if you're hungry. Arsam laid on the makeshift bed of pillows and stared at the ceiling. I really am sorry, Eileen, for all of this. I don't really know who those freaks in the masks are. I didn't even know my own mother. It seems I don't know much of anything. He felt his eyes becoming wet again. I never wanted any of this for any of you. Get some rest. You don't need to apologize. Life's an adventure, and it seems you have quite the role in it. Even the professor thinks so. If you hadn't come along, those goblins two years ago would have cooked me. I'll follow you as long as you need me, awesome. With that, Eileen walked out while passing her hand over a partition, and her section of the tent closed off to a wondrous show of lights. The markings on the ceilings began dancing about. They were stars, Arsum thought to himself in awe. There were large orbs of color dancing about a large sun center of the mosaic. Any grief he held for that short moment passed from him, and he was able to rest easy. He next awoke to the fresh scent of bread. Eileen was sitting at a small table with two pillows on either side of it. The satin she wore drifted about her as if a small breeze wafted through the tent, carrying with it, of course, the smell of that heavenly loaf. It's still a bit hot, she said while cutting into it with a small knife. Be careful, okay? Arsa moved to the pillow across from her. He could hardly believe the spread. There were seven types of fruit preserves, along with quartered sausages and fresh eggs. The sound of sizzling liquid splashed into the fine china in front of him, and the humid smell of fresh tea tickled his nostrils. Not bad, I hope, Eileen said, a large smile plastered across her face, and her skin a bit red beneath her fur. Listen, Arsum, I don't know all of the details about your past, but... After we get this flower, I'm sure you'd be welcome here. This could be your new home. Arsum felt overwhelmed in that instance. I'm not so sure that's a... A small sharp pain on his ear interrupted him. He turned to see Lillen standing beside him, a reassuring smile on her face. The image slowly melted away to Eileen standing above him dressed in her leather kit. Come on, sleepyhead. Grab some rations. Let's get to the market. It's time to go. Morning fatigue gripped him a moment, but it almost felt as if an invisible hand had pushed him and he stumbled forward towards Eileen. Watch out, dummy, she said after steadying him. She gave a smile and handed him a small ration. You need to eat something for now. They headed to the designated meeting area where Hugo was already waiting.
Huh. I was worried you two had left for a moment. He didn't seem genuine in the statement. It was more of a casual banter to break the silence between them. I've already packed what I need. Save a health salve that I highly recommend. They've saved my life before. Let's shop at the Azul Marketplace. We should be able to grab everything there. It took the better part of an hour to reach town. Many of the merchants erected their stands in preparation for the day. Seemed we're a bit too early. Hugo said, a bit of annoyance tracing his voice. Actually, I know a place we can go first. It isn't somewhere to take lightly, however, so follow my lead. Neither of them were sure what to make of that, but followed along as Hugo led them to a large decorated tavern, center of the town. Compared to the rest of it, its appearance equated to a gemstone in a pile of rubble. It was clear that this tavern held the key to the town's wealth. Roll initiative. A curious name indeed. There was an alleyway beside it, where a couple of trash bins sat. As they walked past the cans, they began to shake, and a small creature flew by brushing past Hugo, causing him to jump back and pull his dagger. A quick glance told him it was just a couple of common house cats. Each had the exact same fur pattern as Hugo and Aline. Damn cat, Hugo protested. Arsum couldn't help but stifle a laugh at the irony of the statement. Hugo continued down until eventually they came to a solid brick wall. He reached into his satchel and produced a piece of chalk and proceeded to mark the ground with a large sigil of some kind. After a final flick of his wrist, the ground began to crumble away, so much so that Aline and Arsum quickly took a few steps back while Hugo stood confidently at the edge of the circle. No worries. Let's head on. Arsum creeped up to the edge, Aline close behind, grasping his arm. The hole only extended maybe a foot, and then gave way to what seemed like a window to another market, separated only by a thin film that slightly blurred the image. Hugo stepped in confidently and disappeared. Arsum and Aline looked at one another a long moment before cautiously following. Arsum's stomach twisted as he stepped through, and he quickly found himself collapsed on the ground along with Aline on the other side. Hugo greeted them, pulled each of them to their feet with a grasp of the forearm. You'll get used to that. It was the equivalent of falling down sideways, even though the initial jump was straight. We'll be ported back in about six hours or so, so we need to hurry. What is this place? Arsum asked, looking around in astonishment at the bustling market. There were countless vendors and small groups of powerful-looking individuals walking from stall to stall. In the first booth, a man seemingly made of metal tinkered with a large tube weapon Arsum recognized immediately from the time his mother was killed by the angry townsfolk. He was dressed in khaki pants, a blue cotton vest with a large red sash tied around his flank and shoulder. His table was littered with polished parts. As they approached the table, the metal man looked up. Welcome, friends! He waved a fleshy hand in front of them. It was now apparent that this person was an entirely machine, or perhaps entirely human? What are these weapons called? Arsum asked while pointing to the stall. It depends which one. The easiest way is to look at the length. This, for instance, is a rifle. He picked one of the longer ones. It's a bit slower to fire, but you'll have a much easier time hitting things at a distance. These little things here are called pistols. They fire much faster, but can only accurately use them so far. This medium-sized one? 
with the larger boar is called a blunderbuss. It doesn't shoot far at all, but I pray for whoever is on the other side of its friend. What about this one? Eileen said, holding up an extremely large barrel that had some kind of demon carved in the front of it, while the handle and stalk depicted some kind of lewd demoness stretching across its length. That one's not for sale, I'm afraid. It was a gift, actually, from a very powerful devil that helped me through some very difficult times. I like to show it off, is all. Doesn't see as much action as it used to in my adventuring days. Do you have any enchanted items, Warforged? Hugo asked, eyeing the wares. Why, yes, of course, my friend. I can do basic enchantments for a mere one hundred gold. I'm looking for something a little more than basic. A large sack was plopped under the table, a platinum piece sticking from the top. Top shelf customer, not a problem. Let Tienker grant you a marvel. He reached under his stall and produced a large iron box with a series of intricate locks on them. It was clear that they were very difficult to open, even with skilled hands of a tinkerer. I intentionally made sure it had no key, so that only the greatest of thieves could open it should it go missing. Of course, there are other surprises for those of less than mastery of the art. He produced a more compact-looking pistol with a large cylinder embedded between the handle and the short barrel. This would fire twenty times a day, and each shot will cycle six different enchantments. Occasionally, it will also fire two of them together in a single round, my friend. There's no need to reload it, or do any kind of maintenance on it. A self-cleaning rune is inscribed into it. To demonstrate, he poured a bottle of water into the dirt and used his foot to create a slurry. He plunged the barrel into the muck and then thoroughly covered it. The second he pulled it back out, everything seemed pristine. Two hundred platinum, and it's yours. Hugo seemed quite satisfied with the price. He emptied the coins into the counter and then confidently reached into his belt to produce two abnormally large coins with portraits on either side of them and a green light emanating from the center. I trust these will cover the rest. The Warforged looked ecstatic. Absolutely, a bargain, my friend. Arsam and Aline were dumbfounded at the amount of money they had just seen produced. That certainly isn't the wage of a caravan god, Aline muttered to Arsam. Hugo paid them no attention as he slid his new toy into his jacket. To a better tomorrow and much fortune upon you and your friends. They continued along and found themselves in front of a woman with absolutely beautiful scales like a snake and long black silk hair. There were a variety of tonics in front of her. We'll take five healing cells, please. Hugo held up his hand to indicate the number he wanted. The woman looked up at him. Fifty gold, she said coldly. How about thirty and a light lunch? The woman glared at him. Hugo reached into his bag and produced four platinum. Forty. The woman continued looking at him a moment before taking the platinum and handing him five crimson-colored tubes. A pleasure, my lady. Hugo made a bow and motioned for them to leave. They came to a large orc hammering away on an anvil next. I want some leather for my companion here. The orc shrugged his neck in the direction of a small workshop just behind the forge. As they entered, the smell of iron and freshly cut leather permeated the air. A small frog-like woman was rocking back and forth in an armchair holding a small child wrapped tightly in a blanket. Customers, welcome. Who are we kidding up? A glance told her all she needed to know. 
Elf boy. Hmm. Yes, I can take care of you. Fifteen gold fare. The man flicked her two more platinum. Where did you get all of this money? Aline said in disbelief. Hugo smirked. I never said I was hurting for work. I just got bored. The frog woman set the child in the chair and waved her hand in front of Arsum. He immediately felt himself being lifted off of the ground as a spear of water choked around him all the way up to his neck. It fell away, leaving a perfect pocket. She breathed a cool wind that froze it in place, and there was a perfect copy of his body. Give me an hour. I'll have Harold come help. They started out when the frog woman hopped after them, the baby back and folded in her arms. Girl, she called to Eileen, go see Nandu across the way. That bow will get you killed. Tell him Tadpole sent you. He owes me, and it's really all he's ever been good for. They all felt a bit of spice behind that last part. Harold was still hammering away at the anvil, and turned as if by instinct as they exited. He gave them a glance over before turning back to his work. They crossed the street to a building marked with a bow and arrow. An assortment of bows lined the wall, bushels of arrows and oaken barrels throughout one section of the building. Another frog-like creature sat behind the counter, his skin purple and yellow. He was carving out a black piece of wood. Tadpole sent us. Said you can get Miss Alina a better bow? The frog looked noticeably annoyed at being disturbed. Let's see it. Aline placed her bow, which indeed did seem crude, even compared to the unfinished one sitting in front of the keep. He picked it up and began to flex it as if to dry-fire it. The balance is horrible. At least a three-kilogram offset. Good thing you had van braces, huh? What's your budget? He said, looking up. Uh... Aline began pulling out a pouch of gold the professor had given them, when Hugo grabbed her hand. Tadpole told us you owed her a favor, and that we could collect on that. The frogman looked annoyed once more. Does she just expect me to give away my wares for free? He was growing noticeably agitated. Guess I'll let her and Harold know that's a no-go, Hugo said with a wolfish smile. No, no need for that. Here, take this one. He hopped to the wall and took down a more ordinary-looking bow. Come, test fire a few shots. Aline walked over to a long hallway with a large target and three quills set up at the very end. He handed her five arrows. Even though the bow looked ordinary, it fit snugly in her hand. As she knocked the arrow and drew back the string, she heard a small gasp from the shop owner who was staring at her in wonder. Please continue. She re-knocked the arrow and loosed it perfectly. The draw had no hang-ups whatsoever. The pull felt easy, but the limbs were clearly powerful. Again, again. She pulled back and felt a small hand in her back. Excellent musculature. She loosed the arrow, splitting the first, and then looked back at the frog. I can't shoot properly with you appraising me like that. The frog man looked up at her. I disagree, he said, pointing down the range. Try this one next. He grabbed a darker bow and had her fire a few shots. She decided to hit the quills that were nearly impossible to see as far as Arson was concerned. This time, even Aline let out a grunt of surprise as a single arrow split into three perfectly and hit all three of them. A prodigy, the frogman said with a grin crossing his face. He led them back to a counter and told them to wait a moment before beckoning them over to a small room in the back. These are mastercrafted bows. My crowning achievements, enchanted by Archmage Isolith herself. This one is the Witch's Cauldron. He pointed to a sickly-looking bow, 
the wood itself gnarled in a dark color. It poisons anything hit with projectiles from it. This one, he said, pointing to a deep red wood that was warm to the touch, will ignite arrows. They even burn underwater for a short time. This last one you fired, he said, holding up the bow that split the single arrow into three. It will rain hell on those you deem enemy. Now it's your turn, dear listeners. The shopkeeper has become somewhat enamored with our tabaxi heroine, and offers some of his finest selections. Of course, he might have a few other choices hidden away. Feel free to comment your own. The most votes wins. Let's write a story. Let's play a game. Without the dice.